Dear Lord God in heaven, we just thank you so much, Lord, for the way that you guide us in your word, Father, that you give us um, everything we need for every situation. Lord, we just lift this day up to you. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be within us, that you would penetrate our hearts, Lord, with the power of your word, that we would not go away the same, that we would be different, that we would be changed. Lord, that our marriages would be richer and more fulfilled, Father, that if we are not married, we will have wisdom, Lord, and that we will be able to pass it on to others. Lord, we thank you for everything you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, I am here to talk to you today about marital difficulties. We're going to get right to the heart of the problem. All right. So for those of us who have been married for any length of time, We can testify that in marriage, we will have difficulties. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.28, Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Although there are many blessings in marriage, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord, Proverbs 18.22. We also know that it comes with a whole new set of problems. How do you take two very different, flawed and sinful people and mold them into one? How do they live together in unity and seek the same goals, find fulfillment, love, and serve the Lord effectively? Those who are married or have been married know that marriage is not for the faint of heart. There are all kinds of difficulties that come from living as one with another person. They bring with them their own personality, filled with flaws, not to mention our own. Although God has made men and women different so that they fit together perfectly to form one, our sinful natures have accentuated those differences, and we find that we think differently, communicate differently, have different needs. The ways of showing love and affection are different. Each person brings to the marriage different expectations learn behaviors from our parents and others, the wounds and the scars that we've acquired along life's path, not to mention our extended family that adds a whole new set of problems. Placed on top of that are the stresses of life that come and the different ways we and our mate handle them. This can become even more difficult if we are unequally yoked. Most marriages, at one time or another, will deal with some or all of these communication problems, financial issues, child-raising disagreements, difficulties with in-laws, and differences in expectations. Some marriages must deal with deeper problems such as addictions, long-term physical and mental health issues, others with an even more destructive issue, that of infidelity. If we try to address all of these issues, we could be here for the next month and beyond. The truth is, the answers to these problems are probably a bit different for each couple, as each person, each relationship, and everyone's expectations and needs are different. But the real root of our difficulties in marriage are given in Scripture, that which makes the difference in how successful a couple is in achieving unity and fulfillment in their relationship is how well they are able to love one another, as God both demonstrates and commands us. Romans 13.8 tells us, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And Galatians 5.13.14 says, But through love serve one another, 
For all the law is fulfilled in one word, and that word is love. God is a God of relationship. Everything he commands is pointed toward relationship, our relationship with him and our relationship with one another. The marriage relationship is the one that most closely imitates God's own relationship and his relationship with us. It is important that we follow his lead. In Mark 12, 29, 31, Jesus tells us, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is pointing first to the unified relationship of God. It is our example. And you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This speaks of our relationship with God and how we might be unified with him. And the second, like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This speaks of our relationship with one another. There is no other commandment greater than these. It is clear that love is the key to relationship and finding unity. No matter what difficulties we face in marriage, understanding how to love God's way will allow us to face those challenges in a godly way. Through love, we will receive blessing. What is not so clear is what God means when he commands us to love one another. Today we're going to take a closer look through God's word at what God means when he tells us love one another and how it can make a difference when we face the difficulties that will inevitably come up as we strive to become one in marriage. For all of us, learning to love as God loves will allow us to strengthen our relationships and to bring us peace and joy for which we all long. Although I'm going to be speaking directly about marriage, these principles apply to all relationships, whether they be with our children, our parents, our friends, our neighbors. Well, you get the idea. When we look at the New Testament in the original Greek, we find that there is more than one word that is translated into the English word love. One word in Greek is phileo. Phileo means to be a friend to, to have affection for, to have a personal attachment as a matter of sentiment or feeling. It is what most of us mean when we use the word love. It can be a strong affection, as we might have for our husbands, or a child, or a family member, or even a close friend. It is also the word that we use to describe how we feel about our pets, or even how we feel about a hobby, as in, I love to read. Phileo is completely based on the feeling towards someone or something. Although phileo love is a good thing for us to have for our husbands, this is not the word used to describe how God loves or how he commands us to love him and one another. That word is agape. Most of us have heard that word before, but it's important for us to understand how it differs from our usual idea of love. Agape is a word that describes the way God loves. In fact, it is his essential nature. It is the attitude of God the Father toward his Son, toward the human race, and believers in the Lord Jesus particularly. It is the fruit of his Spirit. It is his will for his children concerning their attitude toward one another and toward all men. Jesus Christ demonstrated God's love to us not only in his life and in his teachings, but more clearly in the giving of himself for us. This love is not based on anything admirable in the objects of that love, but out of the character of the giver. 
It is placing others above ourselves and working no ill toward anyone. It is seen through action and is not based on feelings. It is the character of righteousness. As we consider the definition of agape love, I'd like to point out three important differences from our usual idea of love. First, it is not based on feelings. It has nothing to do with how we feel about a person. Therefore, it does not change. It is not based on how another person behaves. We do not fall out of love we do, um, as we do when we love based on feelings. It comes from our character, a godly character. The second way that it's different is that it is not based on anything admirable about the one whom we bestow this love upon. God demonstrates his agape love to us by sending his beloved son to die for us while we were completely unworthy of his favor, as we're told in Romans 5, 8. Jesus teaches us to have the same type of love toward others in Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons, it says, but I changed it to daughters, of your Father in heaven. So far, we know that agape love flows from our godly character and is not based on our feelings, so it is continuous and unchangeable. It also isn't based on the character or actions of another person, so it is given to everyone without partiality. The third difference is that agape love is sacrificial. The opposite of this kind of love is self-seeking, self-assertiveness, and self-interest. It seeks the opportunity to do good to others and never works ill toward anyone. In John 15, 12 through 13, Jesus tells his disciples, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. It is a rare thing that one of us might actually be required to give our life to save another, as Jesus Christ did for us. But to love as God loves, we are required to lay down ourself for others daily, to sacrifice our own desires and wants for those around us. This is a hard thing. In truth, we want to be selfish. We desire to love our husbands and others, but we also want to get our own needs met, whether they're physical, mental, or emotional. We're filled with pride, and that pride gets pricked if we must lay aside what we consider our rights for the sake of another. Our selfish attitudes are destructive to our marriages, God wants better for us. We, like our God, are designed for relationship. Learning to love sacrificially will attain for us the rich and fulfilling relationships that we desire. God does not desire for us to feel as though we must fight for what we need in our marriages and our other relationships because our loving Heavenly Father will provide us with everything we need if we will only trust Him and walk according to His ways. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory, and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84:11. If we are trusting God for everything we need, then we are free to love our husbands and others completely. So what does this agape love look like as we live out our daily lives? Let's take a closer look at how the Bible describes this kind of love. 
Agape love is the character of God, and it is the character that he desires in his children. So if you'll um, take out your Bibles, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. This is the classic description of agape love. What I'd like... What I like about this description is that it not only tells us what agape love is, but it also tells us what it isn't. So if you'll get that, we're going to be using that as our framework as we continue on. So it's, agape, it's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. It begins with, love suffers long and is kind. Some of your versions may say love is patient. I think suffers long is more descriptive. (laughs) I have heard some Christians say don't pray for patience or God will send you the circumstances you'll need uh, in which you'll need it. But I say the opposite. Pray for this fruit of the spirit for it is lovely to behold in a person and it brings great blessing to both the giver and the receiver in a close relationship like marriage. Patience is vital. The Greek word for long-suffering is makrothermeo, and it means long temper. Love does not lose its temper or become frustrated with another person. It does not lose heart. It perseveres patiently and bravely in in enduring misfortunes and troubles and is patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others even when they happen over and over again. There's a lot of meaning in this word, and it's important for us to nurture patience like this in our marriages. In the day-to-day, we need to be patient with the way our husband does things that might be so different from the way we'd like him to do it. We need to learn to compromise and to yield. It seems that in marriage, there are never-ending opportunities for practicing patience, for both us and our spouse as we become one with each other and journey through life together facing the trials and tribulations life throws at us. What we don't want to do is lose our temper with our husbands. I love what James has to say about losing our temper. So then, my beloved, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, James 1.19. Our anger is selfish. We get angry because we have been hurt in some way. We're not thinking of the good of the other person. We're concerned with our own interests. That's why James tells us that our anger does not produce the righteousness of God. God is always righteous. When he gets angry, he never does so in a selfish manner, but to work righteousness and goodness. Ephesians 4.26 is a verse that many use to justify being angry with their spouse as long as they don't let the sun go down on their anger. But if we read it carefully, we see that there is another limitation to our anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not give place to the devil. Anger is a strong, passionate emotion. It is extremely dangerous and difficult to control. Be angry and do not sin, this verse says. If we're angry because we've been hurt or because something isn't going the way that we want it to, we're in danger of sin. Even if we believe we are right, anger is not the proper response. We need to seek God and not allow these strong emotions to continue. This verse does not mean go ahead and be angry for a limited amount of time, but instead to seek God immediately to get our anger under control and to allow God to bring us to the point of forgiveness. 
so that the devil will not find a place to bring division in our relationship and bitterness into our heart. Once our heart is in the right place and we are calm, we can ask our husbands to forgive our anger and restore our relationships, and then we can talk with them calmly about whatever the issue might be. Forgiveness is another key to being patient with our spouse, or anyone for that matter. I read in a book by Jan Karen the phrase, Love is a constant act of forgiveness. And so often, this is the case. In scripture, the Greek word translated forgiveness most often means to let go completely. It means that we are to take that sin or the offense that another has done against us and let it go completely, never to bring it back again. God gives us a picture of how we are to forgive when we look at how he forgives in Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Or Isaiah 38, 17, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. God puts them so far away, he doesn't see them again. When we forgive our husbands, our family members, our friends, or anyone, we are to let the sin or offense be completely gone from us. It is like giving up a debt that is owed to us and erasing it completely from the books. In Ephesians 4.32, it tells us, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We are to forgive the same way that our God forgives us through Christ, completely and graciously. We do not forgive because someone deserves our forgiveness, but we forgive out of grace, just the way God has forgiven us. We also don't forgive and then bring up the offense again and again. Once it is forgiven, it should be forgiven completely. I like to picture in my mind a ledger with a debt or offense that has occurred against me written there. Then in my mind, I completely erase it, as if it had never been there. It reminds me that I can't bring it up again, even in my own mind, because it no longer exists. I can't keep trying to collect what is no longer owed. If we have forgiven completely, we are now free to graciously work out differences between us and our spouse. There's no longer anger or bitterness there. Um, But sometimes that's not even possible. Learning to forgive completely is even more vital in that situation. Because if we won't forgive and we're keeping track of the wrongs committed against us, bitterness will grow in our hearts and will destroy our relationship. If we're having trouble forgiving, it's good to remember the large debt that God has forgiven each of us, completely and with grace through Christ Jesus, and to remember that Jesus died for that sin that we're having such a hard time forgiving. Reading Jesus' words in Matthew 18:21-35 can help as we're reminded of the importance of forgiving one another's trespasses from the heart. Continuing in 1 Corinthians 13, we see that long-suffering is coupled with kindness. If we're not to get angry or frustrated with our spouse when offenses occur, what is the proper response? It's kindness. We're to answer offenses and injuries with kindness and compassion. Who does that? God does that with us every single day. He is long-suffering with our sin, desiring our good. For believers, he is patient and compassionate as a good father with his children. 
With unbelievers, he is patient, showing them kindness, desiring that they will come to him and be saved. We, as his children, are to be like him. Kindness is used in scripture, as used in scripture, means moral excellence of character. It is not only the way a person acts and speaks, but it penetrates to their whole nature. Kindness is never harsh, cold, stern, or austere. Instead, it is gentle, charming, and calm. We are to be encouraging and to desire only good. This is a goodness of action and is expressed in words and deeds. It never expresses itself in indignation or anger against sin, but instead in grace, in tenderness, and in compassion. When you look for ways to be kind towards someone, your anger and your hurt just seems to fade away. This is the way God commands us to respond to one another. This is how we love one another in our marriages. Think of the difference this could make in the quality of our relationships. You might say that all sounds wonderful, but that's not me. And I'm right here with you. It's not me either. It's not any of us. That's why God gave us his spirit. If this is our desire to have this character, which is the will of God for each one of us, he will help us to become this person with a lot of practice and hard work on our part and an overwhelming amount of guidance and grace on his. Continuing on in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, we read, Love does not envy. Envy is another powerful emotion. In Greek, it comes from the word that means to be hot or to boil. Those phrases are very descriptive of how envy can make us feel. Envy is evil and is always sin. It means to be tormented by another's good fortune and is active and aggressive to diminish the good in another. It is most often accompanied by petty complaining and fault-finding. Envy is a terrible thing to let slip into a relationship. It pits the two that are supposed to be one against each other. In the mind of the one that is envious, they become competitors. It causes us to resent the one we're supposed to love. As wives, we can be envious of our husband's career or the time that he spends with friends. We can feel burdened down by the drudgeries of housework and feel that we have an unfair share of the responsibility in this area. We can even feel envious of the way he seems to age more gracefully than we do and his ease with talking to new people. Envy can show up in all kinds of places. When we're feeling these uncomfortable emotions, we need to take them to God in prayer and get rid of them. They are destructive and they are sinful. Envy is an enemy of love, and if left unattended, it can grow into malice and destroy a marriage. Ask Cain where envy can lead. Jealousy is a close cousin to envy. In a marriage, jealousy can be a good thing when it's protecting the sanctity of the marriage. But we need to remember that jealousy is a powerful emotion and can also be very dangerous. We never want to place ourselves in a position that would cause our husbands to be jealous or to question our faithfulness to him. It's a good idea to sit down with your husbands and set up boundaries that you can both agree upon to protect your marriage. Don't think that you're immune to being attracted to another man just because it has never happened. Protect yourselves and your marriage covenant by setting up boundaries beforehand so that when the situation arises, you'll know what is acceptable and what is not. Also know that if you are an insecure person, you can be susceptible to irrational jealousy, which can also damage a relationship. 
A husband needs to know that you trust him. This is also part of love. As we continue looking in 1 Corinthians 13, we see the next phrase says, Love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. Pride has no place in love. God's love focuses on another person. Pride focuses on ourselves. These phrases speak of boasting about oneself. How often do we make sure our husbands know that we are better at doing something than they are? To make ourselves feel better. Our our culture stresses the competence of women at the expense of making men look foolish and incompetent. We should be encouraging and thankful to our husbands, giving them our respect, not cutting them down. Philippians 2.3 tells us, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others as better than himself. When it comes to seeking praise, Proverbs 27.2 has wisdom for us. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. These phrases in 1 Corinthians 13 also speak about manipulation. It is wrong and disrespectful for wives to use manipulation to get what they want from their husbands. It is prideful, self-centered, deceitful, and unloving. Our culture teaches women that manipulation is part of their arsenal of tools to use to get what they want from men, part of their feminine wiles. But there is nothing honest or righteous in this, and we ought not to do it. Instead, we should be honest and forthright with our husbands, letting them know by our actions and our words that we trust them and that they can trust us. As Proverbs twenty four twenty six says, An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. God desires us not to be proud, but to be humble. Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. Speaking of humility, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 gives us a picture of what it means to be humble. In these verses, we read how Jesus submitted willingly to his father to become a bondservant. It didn't mean that he was any less than his father, but he was willing to look to take on a more humble role for the good of all. God asks us as wives to submit willingly to our husbands, to honor them and to serve them as their helpmates, not because we are any less than our husbands, but because this is the order that God designed for all our good. We are specially designed to carry out this role, and in so doing, God will honor us, just as he honored the obedience of his son Jesus. To place our husbands above ourselves and to put ourselves willingly under their authority with love and compassion for them through a humble spirit is a difficult thing. We must sacrifice our own will, our rights, and our desires. This goes against our fleshly nature. It can be a frightening thing to let go of control and submit to another. How can we do this? We can do this through faith in God. It is God that we are submitting ourselves to and him who we are trusting with our lives and our future. We can take everything to God in prayer and thanksgiving, knowing that he is in control of all things, and he hears our prayers. We may have a hard time trusting our husbands to make good decisions for our lives, but we know that we can trust our God. So we submit humbly to our husbands in love and in obedience to God, knowing that our Heavenly Father is watching over us and is delighted with our faithfulness. As we continue to look into 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, we see that the next verse, um, phrases speak of meekness. Do not um, behave rudely. Does not seek its own. 
is not provoked, thinks no evil. God's agape love is meek. We seek that meekness. We see that meekness in the character of Christ, and we also should be cultivating it in our own lives. Meekness is another important quality that our culture and our flesh do not value. It means to have a mild disposition and a gentle spirit. First Corinthians tells us that we are not to behave rudely. That means that rude behavior is never acceptable, not under any circumstances. No matter what another person is saying or doing, our behavior should remain kind and considerate. Meekness yields to others without complaining or being upset. It is not self-seeking. As wives, we are not to seek our own way, but to yield to our husbands. We are to consider what is best for him and for our family, and to yield to his decisions without making him regret it. It is a good thing for a wife to give counsel to her husband, but we should also be aware of the sway that we have over our husbands and not use it to get our own way, but to consider his needs and the needs of our family over our own in love. A spirit of meekness does not allow itself to be provoked. We are to endure the provocations of others and not get angry. Sometimes they are unjust, but we still endure them with patience, remaining kind and not getting angry. Sometimes they are unjust, but we still endure them with patience and remain kind and gentle, knowing that we can rely on God rather than on our own strength to defend us against injustice. Even if our mate is at times cruel, our meekness and our gentle attitude stems from trusting in God's goodness and control over the situation. When we are relying on God in a spirit of meekness, we keep ourselves from thinking evil of another person, no matter what their behavior. We do not plan ways to retaliate or punish. We do not withhold our favor from our husband because they have behaved badly. Instead, we seek to forgive their behavior and to react kindly, hopefully with prayer and at the right time when emotions are not running rampant and you have forgiven him, you'll be able to talk calmly and compassionately with your husband about whatever has happened and find a better way of handling the situation. In Romans 12, 17 to 21, Paul teaches, repay no evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And yes, that does include our husbands. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, that place being with God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. But do not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. These verses give us a good picture of an attitude of meekness through our trust in the Lord. Continuing on in 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 6, it tells us, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but in the truth. Iniquity, in this case, means unrighteousness, which is anything that does not meet the standard of God's holiness. In those things, we should take no pleasure. When we consider this in in our marriage relationship, it's important for us to remember that the wisdom of the world won't bring us peace and joy that we desire in our marriage relationship. The world is full of advice on the roles of husbands and wives and how they should relate to one another, what is acceptable, what is not. And sadly, 
the world makes it easy to tear apart what God has joined together as one. We as Christians are not to embrace any of these ideas about marriage and about how we are to love our husbands. God is our creator and the creator of the union of marriage. His truth is what we are to embrace, and through it, we will find fulfillment in our marriage. It doesn't mean that we won't have problems in marriage or in life, because we know that Scripture tells us we will. But if we're living as God commands us, loving as he loves, then we will have peace even when we're going through the trials. Jesus told his disciples in John 16:33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. When we are in Jesus, walking as he walked, which means that we have the same character that is expressed through agape love, Jesus says we will have peace, even though he clearly tells us we will have tribulation in this world. In John 15, 9-11, Jesus also comforts his disciples and uses these words, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Again, we read that if we continue in Jesus' agape love, in other words, make his character our character, if we learn to be patient, kind, and compassionate with our husbands, forgiving them, if we put away pride and envy and humbly submit with a gentle and quiet spirit, trusting God, we will have his joy, and our joy will be full, no matter what trials, what tribulations we face. So looking again back at 1 Corinthians 13, we see verse 7 gives us a list of four qualities of love. The first, love bears all things. Agape love is about relationship and unity. In a marriage, this love strengthens us through our faith in God to protect our marriage and and preserve our relationship with our husband. This word, bear, in Greek means to keep off something that is threatening, to hold out against, to forbear, and to protect. We want to cultivate this kind of love for our husbands and our marriages. We should desire to fight against anything that threatens to destroy what God has brought together or that threatens the good of our husband and our family. The second one is love believes all things. The word is talking about faith. We are to have faith in our husbands and to assure them that we trust in them, but even more so, we are to have faith in God and in everything his word says. By building our faith in God, who is above all things, and in the truth of his word, We can have faith in our husbands and give them the respect that God commands us to give. We can can submit under our husband's authority with confidence, knowing that God is in authority over all. Faith is is a fruit of the Spirit, and we know from Hebrews 11.6 that it's impossible to please God without faith. By continuing in and strengthening our faith in God through our relationship with him, we increase our ability to love as God loves, and so love our husbands better. The next in the list is hopes all things. When scripture talks about hope, it's not like the hope that we find in the world. In the world, hope is a maybe. It might happen. But with God, it's a certainty. When we read that our hope of salvation is through Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that we might receive eternal life. It means that even though we can't see it now, we will with absolute certainty receive it. Everything that God promises in scripture 
we will receive. And we can count on it. Knowing what God has done for us should bring us great joy. In our marriages, hope through God should give us joy even when we're struggling with difficulties. It keeps us going, helps us to keep on loving. Nurturing hope in our marriage and using it to keep us from becoming negative and complaining is wise. God finds grumbling offensive. James 5.9 warns us, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. In case you're unclear, that definitely includes our husbands. Instead, use, God, use hoping God to cultivate joy in your character. If we're to think about what kind of people we find attractive, it is usually those who are positive and joyful about life. The wife sets the tone for the home. And if she is positive and joyful and filled with God's love, her home will be a place of peace and joy. Proverbs 16.24 tells us, Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. And Proverbs 15.17 says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than the fatted calf with hatred. The last in this list about love is that it endures all things. As we said in the beginning, there will be difficulties in marriage. They can be everyday issues such as disagreements about household duties to the long-term problems like chronic health issues or addictions or even something as serious as infidelity. But agape love endures all things. This word for enduring Greek means to remain even under trial. It means to have strength of will that will allow a person to face danger, to bear pain, or adversity with courage, and to do so with patience. The only way to accomplish this is to be firmly connected with God. Only he can give us the power to remain in our marriages through the most difficult of circumstances, and you can be assured that he will. James 5.11 encourages us, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Job, he was a man who endured great suffering but remained righteous through it all. God restored to him all that he had lost twofold and blessed him greatly for his faithfulness. God will do the same for us if we endure in our marriages and continue to love our husbands as he has loved us. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that having agape love is greater than any other gift of the Spirit. It is better than having all knowledge and all understanding and prophecy. It is better than having great faith. Of all these things that will last into eternity, love is the greatest. John tells us in 1 John 4, 7-8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. Agape love is not based on a feeling. It is not just words or actions. It's the very character of a person. God loves us because it's who he is. He cannot help but love us. He's good because that's who he is. We as his children must love in the same way. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed. We can either quench the work of the Holy Spirit by embracing the ways of the world and our flesh, 
or we can encourage God's work by willingly submitting to his commands. The place to start in those relationships are those that are closest to us, our marriages. Strengthening our relationship with God through through, um, daily being in the word and consistent prayer throughout the day will help us grow in our ability to love. Being familiar with scriptures that describe agape love can help us make these attributes part of our own character through the help of the Holy Spirit. We have been looking at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. That's a great one to memorize. It's not too long and it's fairly easy. My favorite um, scriptures that talk about agape love are Colossians 3, 12 through 17. It's a little long for most of us to memorize, but reading it over and over can help you to become familiar with it. Romans 12, 19 through 21 is another good passage that we can become very familiar with. And Galatians 5, 22 through 23, the fruit of the spirit is another good one that we can memorize. Difficulties in marriage are inevitable, but the root of the problem, that which divides what God has joined together, is our own resistance to loving the way God loves. Instead, we bow down to our own pride and seek to do things our own way with disastrous results. God has a better plan for our marriages. I love the verse in Matthew 11:28 through 30 where Jesus invites us to come to him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and that can be in your marriages, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you tired of struggling in your marriage? Learn from the master, Jesus Christ, how to love. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to seek one of us out after the seminar is over and talk with us about how you can know the God who loves you so much that he gave his own life to save yours. I also want to encourage you with some extra resources. Um, Out in the foyer, um, if you look at the table that's there, in the corner, um, it's, um, it's for a really, really good Bible counselor. His name is Tom Klingforth. And he's been a Calvary Chapel pastor since 1982, and he's offered biblically-based counseling for 36 years. He gives counseling for marriage, family, and personal issues. I've known him personally for over 15 years, and I can testify to you that he is a godly man and a gifted counselor. And I went through some very difficult things, and um, he helped me immensely. You can find out more about him on the back table. Um, You're welcome to take his business cards if you know anyone that needs help. Um, he is a great and godly man to, to seek out. And also, back there, um, if you're interested in a more in-depth look at what it means to love like Jesus, I'm going to be offering a Bible study beginning January, um, sometime in January, that's going to be open to all women, doesn't matter what church you attend. Um, and there's a copy of the Bible study out there that you can take a look at on the table in the foyer. So feel free to look through it. If you'd be interested in attending the study, um, it's not a commitment or anything, but if you're just interested, if you can sign up, that way I can contact you and let you know further information. Also, there's a flyer there that will give you some more information, and it has my email on it, so you can email me. And I want you to know that I didn't just read these things out of the Bible and put this together to tell you about how to love like God loves. I had a very difficult marriage where um, my husband had mental Um, problems, um, alcohol addiction, 
and really did not know how to love at all, was very cruel most of the time. And it lasted 30 years through God's help. And I learned all these things through the fire, so I'm telling you, they work. Amen. Thank you.